Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another MIR's U.S. Elections podcast episode. One none of us expected to make, with the election having been over for more than a month now. I'm Max Clark, and today I'm joined by... Emma Fritazio. And... Amy Rosenbluth. For a discussion about the besiegement of the U.S. Capitol building five days ago on January 6th by Trump supporters. So let's jump right in. Uh, could you guys give me an overview of what exactly occurred on January 6th? So on January 6th, Trump held a MAGA rally in which he essentially incited a riot against the Capitol by encouraging his supporters to march on the U.S. Capitol and interrupt the ceremonial vote count certifying Joe Biden's victory in the 2020 election. And that culminated in a multiple thousand strong mob of people swarming the building and breaking in. And there were multiple violent clashes with Capitol Police, and that yielded multiple casualties. One woman was shot. Multiple protesters passed on later from related health complications, and one Capitol officer passed away as well. Yeah, I definitely don't have much to add to that as far as um, introductions go. But yeah, I think that it's one of the kind of rare cases where the actual vote count has gotten, you know, this level of press, like in relation to the actual election itself, which is super noteworthy because, you know, it is just one of those formalities and kind of odd idiosyncrasies, I think, in U.S. politics, where you have this very ceremonial vote count. And um, yeah, it's definitely a continuation of a lot of the rhetoric that we've been seeing from Trump and his supporters since the election of kind of basically grasping at straws to find all these ways to discount the results of the popular vote. So yeah, I think that's like really the main things as an overview of this topic. Yeah, as Amy had mentioned, I think there was like around five casualties, including a um, Capitol Police officer, um, Pence, and like the senators were evacuated right away. Yeah, I think we can dive right in now. Yeah, and so as you guys mentioned, this isn't entirely without precedent. Trump has been incensing his supporters through his rhetoric, refusing to concede, which is without precedent in modern U.S. electoral history, right? And just quickly, like, so amongst the, those protesters, or rather rioters or domestic terrorists, whatever you prefer to call them, amongst them who were storming the Capitol building, apparently it consisted of uh, certain elements such as the Proud Boys, QAnon, Nazis, Confederates, uh, Blue Lives Matters, um, despite the fact that some of them were beating up police officers, so, I mean, yeah, what, what, what's our takeaway from this? Like, what, like, I guess, first off, what would we even call this? What was it that happened on the 6th? I think um, that's like a super interesting question. And it's something that I've definitely given the most thought about as far as this issue goes, where like, I think the word that I've been seeing the most um, in what I've read um, has been coup or coup attempt. But I think that you can kind of see different responses and as it continues to progress, both across the political aisle and from different observers, where Bernie was very clear coming out um, that it was coming out and saying that it was a coup, for instance. I think Biden has used the term domestic terrorism. And I think that like there's different merits in the different monikers that have been given, but I think that it's definitely something that we have to pay a lot of attention about because ultimately, 
I think a big determinant of how we're going to go forward from this is contingent on, you know, and like what direction that will be. I think that's contingent on what we call this and how we identify the kind of broader threat that this represents for American politics and American democracy. Coup attempt is definitely a very interesting way to look at it and to see how well some of the more formal definitions map on to the extent to which Trump incited the riots, the extent to which there was like permissive behaviors and permissive sentiments within the Senate. Yeah, when you actually look kind of within and see who the insurrectionists were, two of the big groups that you saw like within the mob were like QAnoners and white supremacists. And there is quite a bit of overlap between those groups. So I definitely think that whatever we do call it, it is super important to convey the ways in which kind of the trappings of our like post-truth era, if you will, have kind of informed both like the nature and the character that this event took on. Yeah, no, that's a really good point because this is, it, what you're saying about post-truth, this is very unique to our current political climate. I absolutely agree with Emma. I think that it's incredibly important what we term this event. I do believe that it is a little bit simplistic to call it one thing because, I mean, it's, it's an insurrection, but it's also a coup attempt and it's also domestic terrorism and it's an assault on our democracy. But going off of what Emma said, I do think it is quite important to keep the word coup in mind because this has been months in the making. I mean, it's a deliberate attempt to by Trump to maintain his power by inciting violence against an entering government, refusal to abide by one of the cornerstones of our democracy, the peaceful transition of power. I don't think it can be termed anything else than a coup attempt. This isn't without precedent, right? Like this is upon months and months of Trump attempting in other ways to try to overturn the results of the election, you know, through legal means, through dozens of lawsuits, all of which which have been dismissed, through infamously just a few days before calling uh, a Georgia state official, asking them to quote unquote, find like 11,000 votes. So, you know, in that sense, this is just one more attempt on perhaps on Trump and his supporters in trying to overturn the election results. So, I mean, you could categorize it as a coup in that sense, right? Absolutely. I think so. I mean, Trump has been contesting the um, election results since November, and he reiterated that rhetoric once again in his response to the insurrection in this absolutely pathetic one minute Twitter message in which he expressed that the, pe that the protesters, or sorry, they shouldn't be called protesters, rioters, should return home peacefully. And yet he reaffirmed that he'd been wronged in the election and that he understood the motives behind this, the attack. So once again, Trump is just proving that he has no respect for the democratic process. And I'd honestly be inclined to think that the events that unfolded on the 6th quite pleased him until the National Guard was finally sent in on the order of Vice President Pence and not the president. Yeah, those are all like definitely such good points. And I think that one of the things that's so important, and I think that this is probably the area where like the the coup definition maps on the best is because like we have seen this became especially obvious. And I think 
a lot of people predicted that there would be an insurrection of some sort, basically since like the election when Trump, yeah, like as Amy put it, just showed his kind of blatant, his blatant disregard for kind of democracy and our very flawed electoral system by just implying to his supporters and by inciting them with rhetoric about you know, how if you don't like the results, um, just go and take to the streets regardless of um, whether or not there's an actual reason to do so in terms of the votes. So I think that that's definitely where it becomes most appropriate to call it a coup attempt. And I think that some of my hesitance towards like the coup moniker, what it comes from isn't necessarily, you know, a concern with that being too alarmist or too strong of a word. But I think that um, it just doesn't capture all that's at stake, I think, with this, which is, um, yeah, like my main concern about it in that I think like we've been seeing, you know, the C word dropped around a lot more since like Trump started kind of making it clear that he wanted to contest the election and that he was going to encourage that even without a basis for doing so. But I think that we can also look at this event kind of in terms of the kind of much more long-term trajectory of like increased radicalization and increased polarization that Donald Trump, I think, has been so directly complicit in. And in that sense, like when I look at, you know, this event in particular, I definitely see it as being part of like a much bigger wave of radicalization, which one of the biggest examples of is like the correlation between rising hate crimes around the same times and places of Trump rallies. In identifying the democratic threat, there certainly is. One of the main things is definitely the blatant disregard. But I also think that it's like very important to consider the ways in which even if Washington is able to move forward in a way that like sufficiently quells, you know, this momentum and the kind of coup rhetoric, I definitely still think that that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we have to grapple with in, you know, a post-Trump world. Yeah, I think that metaphor of like tip of the iceberg is a good one. It is indicative of like a larger phenomenon of like radicalization, um, right wing terrorism, homegrown domestic terrorism that has sort of popped up recently and is getting worse and worse. I, I do want to pivot though. So let's just quickly just go over like sort of the responses to this. Obviously, Biden gave a televised speech where he condemned it, called on Trump to call it out. As Amy mentioned, Trump gave a like really lame one minute Twitter message that sent very mixed messages. Uh, the two things I'm really interested in are first off the comparisons with the uh, Black Lives Matters protests, uh, because both genuine, both like good faith and bad faith comparisons, ones that have pointed out that, you know, the police response was far less violent compared to how Black Lives Matters protesters were dealt with last summer. Deployment of the National Guard was also far slower. And also many have said that, you know, oh, there's hypocrisy on the left because, you know, the left and the media, they supported the rioters and looters last summer when they were protesting, but why is it when the right wing pro like does rioting and looting, never mind the fact that it's over uh, something that like, genuinely didn't happen versus an issue that's a real issue like systemic racism. So, I mean, that's the first thing I want to go over. And the second thing that I want to go over is just quickly the Republican response, because a bunch of Republicans who intended to contest the results of the election 
suddenly switched around. And I'm just curious if you guys, how complicit you guys think they are and, you know, how the role they've played in allowing this to happen. Um, yeah, I've been very, very interested in looking at the responses of kind of lawmakers on the right, specifically those like like Mitch McConnell, um, the ones who were saying how they wanted to contest the results as well and the kind of shift that we saw. Um, because I think that that's like very notable in terms of like, you know, both applying the coup definition because it's important to assess like the extent to which there was like, there were enablers in power, but also because I think that that kind of points to something very fundamental about Trump's leadership and about Trump's support is that like when you look at his supporters, like Trump voters, like the MAGA hat wearers, a lot of the groups that were identified within the mob, some of the big, like some of the main ones being like white supremacists and QAnoners, when you kind of compare them and you compare their motives for supporting Trump to the point that they stormed the Capitol, I think that you see some like pretty noteworthy differences between them and the lawmakers in Congress, which is not to say that someone like Mitch McConnell or Mike Pence aren't, you know, like super insidious in their own ways. But I think that whereas a lot of the supporters that we saw who were storming the Capitol kind of represented this like group that was just generally very motivated to have Trump in power and to kind of contest the election, I think with a lot of the lawmakers, a lot of their defense and permissiveness of Trump was, you know, highly self-interested and was for different in or kind of served different purposes, depending on who you're looking at. So you kind of, you see the people who supported Trump because of his kind of ties to the, you know, evangelical community, like via Mike Pence. And you can see as well, like his supporters, I don't know exactly what term you would use for them, but you know, the ones that love Ayn Rand, like uh, Ted Cruz. <laughs> um, <laughs> like libertarians? Ted yeah, like the more libertarian ones, like the Ayn Rand book club, like your Ted Cruz's, um, like <laughs> Lindsey Graham's, Rand Paul's, like then there's kind of that group. And I think that what's interesting is that these groups like and joined by white supremacists, QAnoners, neo-Nazis, while they were all complicit in enabling Trump and getting him to power and allowing him to kind of do what he did in power, they had different reasons for do, they had kind of slightly different reasons for doing so. And I think that lack of a clear like underlying ideology is where like this becomes such like, you know, a tricky thing to assess and it's challenging to assess the threat that this represents because you're not just referring to one ideology. Like this is just this kind of amalgam of stress, of frustration, of radicalization on the right but it's motivated by these kind of slightly different aims and sentiments. I would eventually also point out that perhaps this this radical these radical branches that brought Trump into power, I mean they always existed, but what's really concerning is that he's just bolstered them to the point where they're not even afraid anymore. It's kind of like that old joke about like if you're going to be racist to be at least be quiet about it, don't bother anyone. Now they're just out in the open because they know nothing's going to happen to them because Trump has 
inflamed them with his false and violent rhetoric countless times since, since his first election campaign. I mean, we remember watching rallies where he encouraged people to knock the hell or sorry, knock the crap out of protesters and offering to pay people's legal fees or talking about the good old days when protesters would be carried out of rallies on stretchers, or even this year when he tweeted, infamously tweeted, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. I mean, Trump has justified violence time and time again. So whether radical elements were already there or they've been bolstered, at least now they're out in the open more than ever before. Perhaps to address your second point, if I can bring it back partially to nomenclature, Part of the reason why I think calling this event a coup is quite important, it's because it frames Trump as a perpetrator of something, an assault on our democracy, essentially. And I do think that it has pushed certain Republicans to reconsider their affiliations to him. I mean, just look at Kelly Leffler and Jim Blankford. They completely reversed their objections on certifying the, election in fa certifying the election in favor of Joe Biden. Now, whether that is because they realized that they were on a train headed nowhere, they were just seeing the last breaths of Trump's attempt at, I mean, I guess a coup, I don't know, but maybe it actually did force real reconsideration on the part of many Republicans. I mean, if I had to take a guess, I would think it was because they finally saw like after years of them backing Trump, backing his rhetoric, backing, you know, cause you know, every time Trump tweeted something like when the looting starts, looting starts, the shooting starts or whenever he tweeted something very, you know, violent, Republicans always sort of waved it off and said, oh, the liberal media is just being hysterical. And, you know, I think the reason the Republicans might've like changed their minds, mind you, a bunch of them didn't in the house, especially something like the, I think over, uh, the majority of the Republic House Republican caucus still voted to uh, uh, reject the results of Arizona and Pennsylvania. But I mean, I think for a bunch of Republicans, they've like this, the fact that they were personally in danger made them realize, well, crap, the fact that we've been, you know, supporting this extremely inflammatory rhetoric, you know, that actually has, who'd have thunk, that has like a bad effect on American democracy and brings all sorts of as uh, as our good friend Hillary would have said, all sorts of deplorables. And then even then, some Republicans, I believe Kelly Loeffler, they've actually, since then, they've walked back and said, no, we actually still challenged the results. I could, I could go on, but it is just, you know, I think Republicans, they've generally, they've been completely complicit in this, especially figures such as Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, who have inflamed this issue even more. They fanned the flames of hatred and mistrust of the American political system so that they can get their own basis of support so that they can run for president in 2024. And it's despicable. It's like the opportunism that we're seeing in these senators is so horrific and despicable. And it's, you know, it's just, it's disgusting. That's what it is. Frankly, it's really, really disgusting. Um, and I guess I went on a little bit of a rant there, <laughs> but if I were to, I, I do want to just sort of move on from this and talk about like, you know, so in the immediate aftermath, what we're seeing right now is that there's this huge push before Trump is set due to leave office in what, nine days. And there's this huge push to impeach him or have him resign or have him removed through the 25th Amendment uh, before those nine days. Why are Democrats trying to do this? Uh, would you guys like to explain? 
yeah, another very noteworthy development is kind of calls that Trump, you know, even though he just has like nine days left in office and, you know, one after one, we've seen the different like kind of, you know, potential like recourse points, like they've all fallen down like dominoes, like just it has become apparent over and over again that like any attempt to contest the election was just baseless but um nonetheless we are still seeing people on the left like namely bernie sanders who are coming out and saying that it is still like just as important to you know get the ball rolling to impeach trump to invoke the 25th and um like the main reason being that it kind of for the purpose of setting precedent. And I personally think that that's very, very important. I definitely like agree with that, with those motives for holding Trump accountable. Yeah, I don't think that he should be allowed to really like go peacefully from office after all the efforts that he has made to undermine American democracy, to undermine and discount the popular vote. That shouldn't go, I think, unpunished in the political realm in that regard. You know, because this event and the, just like all of the radicalism and all of the different kind of forms of insurgency that we've seen that have been incited by Trump, I definitely don't think that impeachment would be the end-all be-all. And nobody's really saying that it is, but I suppose that the way that I see it, I think this situation and the problem that we're dealing with is more than a coup. It's more than a coup attempt or an attempt to undermine democracy in this very, very direct way. I think that there's also a lot of indirect ways that kind of the lingering threat of Donald Trump and his supporters and enablers will continue to pose so definitely, so I guess, yeah, to make a long story short, like my take on the, you know, impeachment initiatives is that it's, it's important, but there's so much more work to be done. And that work should be mentioned, I think, with as much priority as the potential for impeachment. Amy, do you think impeachment will solve all, all our problems? <laughs> um. Unfortunately not, but I do completely agree with Emma that it does set a precedent. An outgoing lame duck president cannot get away with inciting such incredible violence and threatening our democracy and threatening our, our worldly reputation. I mean, how can we promote the ideals of human rights and democracy after our president has just incited a riot against the Capitol building? But... I do believe that impeachment is valuable for these reasons, some more symbolic reasons than anything else. Um, from what I understand, they would all doing so would also deny him the benefits prescribed to outgoing presidents, such as just lifelong security detail, healthcare, pension plans, et cetera. Not that he needs it, he's a billionaire who doesn't pay taxes, but you know, it's something I would enjoy seeing. Whether the um, Biden administration can actually take the time to, uh, well, at least try and make an attempt at preventing Donald Trump from running for another term remains to be seen. I do think it's valuable, but I don't know how realistic it is considering how many Republican lawmakers would have to turn in favor of the, such an act. Uh, yeah, I think that is a big question, right? Like, because there have been two Republican senators, uh, Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania and Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, who have called on Trump to resign. 
I guess, I don't know, do you guys think that there's a realistic chance of him being impeached or Pence invoking the 25th Amendment? Um, I guess, like, for the time being, like, where we're at in this moment, I don't think that it's very promising. And I think for exactly the reasons that Amy mentioned, like, that it would be, I think, above all else, a symbolic gesture, and that would require you know, like a lot of movement on the part of Republicans and also on the part of the Biden administration, which I don't think there's a lot of evidence to, you know, reasonably predict that that would happen. And I think that one of the big issues is that there has consistently been a degree of, I think, I don't want to say dismissiveness because I don't think that that's fully the right word, but I think something we've been seeing since like Trump announced his campaign all those years ago, (laughs) which seems like forever ago. Since then, we have seen like a level of like dismissiveness, both from like, I think, establishment Democrats and also just from Republicans in general. And that's where I think coup is such a good word, is that it's like, you know, Trump is bad, but, you know, he has this kind of knack for speaking and not really clearly taking a stance and not necessarily saying much, but while still inciting, you know, so much hate and so much radicalization that I think um, there just has been this constant, like, reaction of how far will Trump go? How far will his supporters go? And while I think that this event was a turning point and that we have finally seen, you know, Republican lawmakers just noticing the writing on the wall and saying, like, oh, yeah, these people eat their own. Like, we need to be concerned. Yeah, I still think that because of the amount of effort that it would take to um, go forward with impeachment, I just don't think that like responses we have seen to you know Trump's egregious behavior over the over the past few years like that doesn't necessarily like that doesn't really give us a reason to believe that those efforts will be made um, regarding impeachment. I agree with you. The more I think about it, the more the more I think it would be so highly important to ensure that Trump cannot run for re-election, whether that's through a congressional vote or best efforts to actually indict this man for all the crimes he's committed, like not limited, but included to, but including, you know, fraud and human rights violations of all kinds. Because I, I am so afraid that in the next four years, he will incite, he will just continue doing what he's always done and inciting more and more rage and anger And I do not know what we can do to discredit this man. I don't think that his voter base can, or at least the bulk of his voter base can be swayed because they've been completely inflamed by by his awful rhetoric. And they think that the media is out to get them, that the lefties are out to get them, the liberal media is out there feeding the rest of us lies. I, I, at this point, it's just a cult of the personality. And I don't want that to, build up over the next four years because I don't know if we'll be able to stop it. I mean, yeah, this this ties into my final question for you guys this afternoon, which is, you know, what what does this event and the response and everything that's going on right now, what does this hold for the future? Um, What are we, I mean, do we think that this event is going to be 
the precedent where, you know, from here on out, we'll see political violence steadily increase as a legitimate, maybe not legitimate, but as a tool used in American politics by radical elements. We think this will be a turning point where America under Biden will finally come together and abolish malarkey. Um, like, what, what do you guys think is going to happen from here on out? If you have to venture a guess. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm team abolish malarkey. Um, <laughs> if we can summarize, yeah, like this entire podcast and um, just at least in my views, it's definitely um, abolishing malarkey is the name of the game. But um, yeah, I think in response to your question and also I think in response to like the really good point that um, Amy just made about yeah like the risks of this cult to personal cult of personality the risks of you know the potential that Trump could run again I think that that's really like the fundamental part that we need to respond to and that we need to consider to in determining or in kind of choosing which direction we'll go after this. And I think that like when we look at kind of the danger of Trump and the danger of his rhetoric, like we see like this is definitely the clearest example of like his rhetoric being used to the like end of um, for the goal of like direct undermining American democracy in a very direct sense. But I think that one of the that also one of the very big threats that will continue to stay and that will kind of have a lot more power, like if Trump isn't held accountable and if this kind of, this radical movement is allowed to continue picking up momentum is just this polarization, it's not gonna go away. And I think that I don't see them being swayed and in large part it's because it's a cult of personality and I think that a really big part of it is also just the way that this dovetails with post truth with this kind of post truth era that like in politics I think Trump has been an especially kind of major figure who has allowed this kind of yeah like kind of cascade into the post-truth era whether it's kind of his kind of constant belligerence towards the press the way that he has like very cavalierly joked or perhaps more seriously kind of raised questions or encouraged people to question yeah like not only the press but you know the scientific method the scientific community I think that's like a huge concern that we have in that um, yeah, like when you look at the makeup of, you know, the group of protesters and especially like many of the ones who have been identified have also, are also kind of very active QAnon supporters, you know, that's a concern because I don't think that like throwing information about, you know, why it's wrong to be contesting the election at this point about why this is considered a coup, why this is undemocratic, or why, um, you know, just all of the myriad reasons why this event is problematic and baseless. Like, I don't think that that's really going to sway or quell the momentum of this, because this was motivated, you know, first and foremost, as an attempt to contest the election, but also just it's something that was possible when enough people are willing to reject facts, are willing to reject empirical evidence. Definitely, if we don't face that, the outcomes of this will will just be very bad and it will not be a step in the right direction. Just before we wrap up, any final thoughts 
are we doomed? Are we going to be a-okay? Is there no way to know? Well, what do you guys say? Um, well, definitely don't think we're going to be a-okay. I don't want to say that we're doomed because in a sense, I don't think that we necessarily have to be doomed because of this. But in order for, you know, this to not be as damning as it could be, it will take a lot of effort, whether that effort takes the form of like trying to impeach Trump, or if we do see kind of a large scale effort to grapple with, you know, the trappings of post-truth that were very central to Trump's support base and were very central in this incident. This doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, the final nail in the con in the coffin of the U.S.'s international reputation and of American democracy. It's something that will take a lot of work. And I think that where we do see evidence of possibly moving in the direct in the right direction, I think comes from some of the more momentous events that took place in 2020. Whether it was the large scale efforts that went into, you know, the get out the vote effort or the Black Lives Matter protests that I think woke a lot of people up to just the full scope of systemic racism in the United States. I think because of the those events, um, we do have a place that we can look to, to kind of reorient ourselves and to kind of, you know, heal some of American democracy that hasn't just been undermined by Trump, but that has been, you know, continuously undermined by, you know, systemic racism, by political polarization. So there is somewhere that we can look for, you know, if you want to kind of be a bit more optimistic, ultimately, it depends on how this is framed. It depends on how this is going to go down. So I think that it's just definitely a time to be, to just pay a lot of attention. And I think to take a lot of stock in what has already happened and what's going to happen, you know, in the coming days and weeks with the beginning of the Biden administration. And yeah, it's just going to be very important that this is considered critically, that this is considered for what it is for, you know, the size of the threat that it is, and that will kind of determine whether or not it's good and bad. But I think that we have evidence to believe that not enough will happen, but then we also do have places that we can look to see where, you know, improvements are being made. And I think the kind of leadership and the kind of, yeah, something like the BLM protests that has like a political character that's a lot more promising than what we've seen under Trump. Okay, great. So your answer is to are we screwed is maybe. All right, Amy. Uh... <laughs> yeah, maybe. But I think we have some agency in determining the level of screwedness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much exactly it. I think the best thing to come out of Trump's presidency, if not the only good thing, is that it has bred the most politically aware and active American population pretty much in, in modern U.S. history, right? But yeah, since like the more... 1960s or something. <laughs> but on um, but on a more negative note, how we how we act in the wake of Biden's ascension to office and Trump, I guess Trump leaving office, is going to be really determinant for how polarized we are in the coming years. I mean, whether Trump is allowed to continue in his activities or whether he is prevented from running for office again is going to be wildly important, but as well, whether Trump is impeached and whether he is prosecuted and 
whether that's successful or not, I can't imagine his support base reacting well to the Dems attacking their, attacking their golden boy. So I'm wildly unsure of what is going to happen, but you know, I can take comfort in the fact that a coup was attempted and our democracy came under assault, but the system did not buckle under, under the weight of Donald Trump. All right, awesome. Uh, so my dear listeners, I am just gonna end this with uh, a little story um, I recall about five, uh, four years ago, back just when Trump had been elected and in the few months uh, before he was inaugurated, I was having a conversation with my friend and I asked, do you think we'll ever be the same? And he said, you know, I think Trump's gonna leave a semi-permanent scar on this country. Um, and, you know, four years later, I would say it's more of a permanent scar that is going to be left. Uh, and how exactly uh, we Americans are going to grapple with this issue uh, remains to be seen. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to us. Um, you can check out more of our podcasts on the McGill International Review website, uh, as well as on Podbean. Uh, so thank you very much and have a good afternoon.